0: Good morning, church family. Is everyone wide awake? Everyone ready to learn and grow together today? You're very convincing. Uh, Can we take a moment here, Green, and welcome our Bainbridge, our Cincy, and our online friends who are all joining us by simulcast. Just welcome all of them. It is so good to gather together. It feels really early because it's really dark. Next week, I think, is when we gain an hour, isn't it? And so it's gonna feel, it's gonna be, I don't know how that works, but it's gonna feel much better because we'll have an extra hour of sleep next week. Um, But hey, we start a new series today and it's a slide that Steve so masterfully made us, but I'm not gonna be able to keep this up here for long because you're gonna be bugging out with this slide, aren't you? Um, I remember when when I see this slide, I distinctly remember when I got to an age where things all began to look like this and I remember speaking and preaching because when I would look on the back wall to see the slide or whatever, I, I stopped being able to read it and I just thought, oh, projectors going bad. And I would, I would remember the biggest difference for me is when I would drive home to see my family in Buffalo and especially when I would drive at night, it felt like everyone got brighter headlights because it was blinding to me, especially when I got off the highway and I'd be on a you know, a two-lane road and someone would be coming at me. I'd, oh! And I would almost have to close my eyes to survive it, which I don't highly recommend when you're driving. And what really got my attention is when I would be driving in the dark and it would be raining. Anybody else? Wow! It's like they just took black paint and took off the lines off the road. I could not see. And I began thinking, I think there's something wrong with me. Well, obviously there's a lot wrong with me, but I forget who it was, probably Annie, who finally convinced me, you probably should go get your eyes checked. And I did, and I found out I was, uh, what do they call it, nearsighted, where you can see close but not far, whatever. I just remember they told me I needed glasses. And so I went to the Vestal Walmart, and I got fitted for glasses, and I remember the day I went and picked them up, and I put them on, and I'm like, okay, you know, whatever, and I stepped out of the eye care center into Walmart, and I just stopped, stunned. And I looked around, and all of a sudden I realized there are signs hanging from the ceiling of Walmart. And they tell you with big letters what department you're in. With, I mean, literally, I just stood there, and I looked, and there were signs everywhere with writing on the signs. And I remember just taking it all in and, and I thought, I've been missing things for a little while. And the only way I could describe it is I felt like I could see in HD. I felt like all of a sudden I've been looking at a grainy picture and all of a sudden I can see in HD and my whole life just poof came into focus. I couldn't believe I could drive and stay on the road, even at night, even in the rain. And so glasses have dramatically changed my life at least physically. But I don't know about you, but it seems like the last 18 months I've been doing a lot of squinting, trying to find my way through life. It's been confusing, it's been disoriented, it's disorienting, it's been disconcerting. How do I get things into focus? How do I see where to go? Who do I listen to? Which political candidate do I believe? (laughs) None of them. (laughs) I think that's the way a lot of us have felt, right? Which medical expert should I trust? Which expert should I say, okay, that one's the one I'm gonna listen to? Which news story and which headline am I gonna say, okay, I think that's valid, I think that's accurate? And for probably almost two years now, I think a lot of us have been saying, okay, I'm confused, I'm disoriented, I'm frustrated, I don't know how to navigate my way through this mess. And here's what might be a little bit of good news. We're not alone. You've heard misery loves company. Because see, centuries ago, there was a small local church in a little community that was beginning to deal with confusion. They were beginning to be disoriented because experts were telling them different things. And reliable sources were telling them contradictory things. And they were getting advice from different places. And some of the talking heads and the teachers and the experts were telling them things that they just needed to, they just needed to embrace, even though they didn't understand it. But they couldn't understand it because they weren't experts. So just trust us, we're the experts. And so these people in this small community, in this small church, were, were beginning to be confused until the day they got a letter from someone they respected. And that letter was meant to to refocus and reorient them. And that letter was tremendously helpful in in helping them kind of calibrate where they were and figure out where to go. And it it was a life changer for that little church and that little community. And what it did more than anything else to cut through the confusion is it was almost like it put eyeglasses on them so they could see spiritually again. And it's almost like it gave them a better view, a clearer view of God. It's been said, and I've loved this quote, I think of it often, a person will never rise above their view of God. A person will never rise, above. whatever your view of God is, you're probably never gonna exceed that, you're never gonna rise above that, you're never gonna outwin that. Whatever your view of God is is gonna be your limiting factor. And so this letter that we're going to dive into for the next four weeks is going to, I think, enlarge your view of God. And I think you'll realize when your view of God gets enlarged, everything changes. When God gets into focus clear, everything else changes. If God and the knowledge of him was this circle, let's say this circle represents everything there is to know about God. What we're going to learn today is going to represent this. Some of you are like, what? those of you in the front, can you see this? There's, there's a dot here, I promise. I have my glasses on. I can see it. But listen, what we're going to learn, and maybe I, I would even be a little more <laughs> honest and say everything that I know about God probably is represented by that speck. I, I've often thought, you know, I, I don't even understand God's big toe. You know, symbolically, I, I, I understand so little about God, and so the more I understand about God, the more that changes everything else. And so as we dive into this little letter, it's only three pages in my Bible, it's only a 15-minute read, I'm gonna encourage you during this series to read it over and over and over. Because I think what you'll find about this series, this book, this letter that we're gonna study is it's a lot like the lemonade I made as a kid. As a kid, I just assumed that if some lemonade mix made good lemonade, then a lot of lemonade mix would make great lemonade. Some of you know what happens when you put too much lemonade mix in. Too lemony, yes! Yes, you've done it before, haven't you? I remember the sugar rush. I still haven't come off that. I I also remember that as much as I love sugar, it just was too much. It was too much. And I had to keep pouring water in, and my couple quart thing of lemonade turned into a few gallons just to get it where I could drink it and not choke. And so I think what you'll find is this little letter we're about to study is really like concentrated lemonade mix that you're just going to guzzle. It's going to be too much. And so I hope in your small group, in your connect group the next few weeks, you're going to have a chance to kind of sip it and saturate in it and absorb it. I hope in your personal time with God that you're going to spend time in this little letter and be able to absorb and understand it at a deeper level. With all that said, anyone want to guess which little letter we're going to be in? Colossians. Some of you read the subtitle. You're good. Colossians, chapter 1. So you can turn there in your Bible. Anyone ready to have your view of God enlarged this morning? Ready to get refocused? Okay, and if you're not, listen, that's okay. I'm just glad you're here. Just kind of sit and and absorb and maybe learn with us as we dive in. But Colossians chapter 1, page 949 in your chair Bible. And uh, listen, if you want a Bible, uh, you want an easy to read Bible, maybe you have an old style Bible that's hard to understand with King James language, take that Bible with you, it's our, it's our gift to you. At any of our campuses, that Bible's our gift to you. Colossians chapter one, and and I just wanna tell you, I'm, I'm a very, I don't know, plan type person. I like to prepare messages in advance, so like normal, this message was fully prepared. And and preached in advance. I do do a backup message. Whoever's preaching always does a backup message during the week on Wednesday or Thursday. I just want to let you know the message I prepared for today, I threw I threw away last night. And that's a scary thing for someone who likes to be prepared. Um, But but I did it because the more I've I've saturated and soaked in this little letter, and especially in this first chapter, I I don't think I was going in the right direction. And I think this little letter and especially this first chapter was more for me and more for us than I realized. So I'm not going to be really tied to a bunch of notes today. I'm just going to share what God has shared with me, what he's laid on my heart, what he's taught me from this text. And I have no idea where we're going to go today, but I hope we go there together and learn something from God. So let me give you first a little context, a little background to this letter to the Colossians. Like a lot of letters in the New Testament, it's named after the recipients of the letter. The recipients were the Colossians. Okay, so this, if this letter was to us, it would be to the Southern Tyrians, or the New Yorkers, or whatever the case may be. So the Colossians were people that lived in the ancient city of Colossae. Colossae is no longer populated. It's, uh, it got hit with a bad earthquake, it got rebuilt, and then it got kind of abandoned. But Colossae about 500 years before Jesus was a bustling, populated city and a city center. It was a center for commerce and trade and all the rest. But something happened through the years with Colossi. And, and what happened is a new highway got built that kind of went around Colossi. And so people didn't stop in Colossi nearly as much. And so if you're a Lightning McQueen fan, think Radiator Springs in the Cars movie, think Route 66. So all the towns that sprung up along Route 66, all the cities, when the highways were built, all those cities kind of went to small towns. And that's the way it happened with Colossi. So over generations, the the population had shrunk. It went from being an important, influential city to being kind of a small city, a small town. And and, and that was their story. They had lost every generation. They had lost population. People kept moving away for better jobs. This doesn't sound at all familiar, does it? And, and they didn't have much influence culturally, they didn't have much influence politically. Does that sound familiar? And, and so for those of us who live in a steeply declining state and a steeply declining population area of the state in the southern tier where we topped the charts in terms of population loss, where we realize we have very little political influence on our state or our country, it's easy to feel that we don't matter. And it was easy for them in Colossi to feel that way too, but the people in Colossae mattered to God. They mattered enough that God would instruct his apostle to write him a letter that would be recorded forever in what we call the Bible. And so the Colossians and their city and their little church were pretty important to God. And they were pretty important to Paul, the one who writes this letter. Now, the way that this church got started is that there was a, a kind of a, Guy who was famous named Paul who came not to their city, but he came to Ephesus. And that was about 100 miles away from Colossae. And when Paul came to Ephesus, he he found it was such an effective ministry that he parked for a while. Paul was not a guy to park for a while anywhere, but he parked in Ephesus for three years. And for three years, people came from surrounding towns and cities to hear this guy Paul and to hear his message. And people's lives kept changing. Finally, over in this little town called Colossae, This guy named Epaphras came, heard Paul preaching, and Epaphras surrendered his life to Jesus. He went back home to Colossae, more than likely the very first believer in the entire town, and he began to share the good news of Jesus. And as he did so, a gathering of believers was formed, and a gathering of believers, we call it a church. And so that's how the church at Colossae was founded, was this guy named Epaphras, who heard from Paul in Ephesus the gospel, and shared it in his hometown, in his community, in his hometown community, some of them embraced it. So that's kind of the story of this little church. Now, I mentioned that there was teaching and there were experts that were confusing them, and so there were all kinds of different, what we might consider heresies today. Teaching that sounded good, it was 95% good, but it had 5% off base. Kind of like rat poison, right? Ninety. 99% 99% grain and just a little bit of poison and that's enough to kill him. And Epaphras became concerned that the people in his church, as faithful and as much as they love Jesus, were gonna, were gonna swallow this stuff and we're gonna get off base. And he was concerned about that. So he booked a bus ticket, a greyhound ticket to Rome because in Rome was Paul. Now Rome, just ge- geographically, was 1,300 miles away from Colossae. That's like going from here to Orlando, Florida, not by bus, on foot, or donkey, or something. But Epaphras felt it was a vital journey for him to take because his people needed some help. So he goes to Rome. Any idea why Paul was in Rome? Well, obviously he had some vacation time he was trying to use. No, see, Paul was very bold and as he went around the empire of his day, he kept sharing about Jesus, which kept causing problems and conflicts and riots and issues. And as Paul kept doing that, the, the magistrates and officials in a local town would be bothered by that, and would say, you need to leave our city, leave our town, you're causing divisions, you're stirring things up. And Paul just wasn't one to be quiet. He wasn't one to stop when he was told to stop, and he wouldn't. And So finally he was arrested, he was imprisoned, and he said, listen, I appeal to Caesar I appeal to the emperor now strategically why do you think paul wanted to have a trial before the leader of the roman empire perfect opportunity to share jesus so he very cleverly says i appeal to caesar as soon as you said that as a roman citizen you were on you were in the queue to go stand before the caesar the emperor and have a trial now obviously the emperor was very busy so it took years to do it. Paul knew he would be stuck in prison for years, and he was. So they got him to Rome. He's under house arrest, and when you're under house arrest in Rome, you have freedoms, even though you're waiting for your trial. And so he was allowed to have visitors. He was allowed to write letters, and Paul did a lot of both during his time in Rome. And, and one of his guests that he welcomed was Epaphras, the young man who got saved in Ephesus, and now he's in Colossae, and he's sharing with Paul all about Colossae. So you get a little bit of the context here. And Paul hears what's going on in Colossae, and he sits down, and he had really weak eyesight, so he would, he would narrate his letters to someone, dictate them, and someone else would write them down. And Paul narrates this letter to this little church in this little town called Colossae. And here's how he begins. Verse one. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Timothy. We are writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, it's just kind of a cool way for him to begin this letter to people that have never met him, people that certainly respect him because the one who started their church was led to Christ by him. So they certainly would have respected Apostle Paul and to get a letter from him would have been special. But then to have it start with, you're God's holy people. Like, I know who I'm writing to, And you're God's special people. You're his chosen possession. You've been set apart from him by him and your faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Now one of the reasons that I've this this week and especially this weekend I've had my view changed about this passage is what if this was from Paul to us? I think there's a ton of similarities between what Paul would write to our church today and what he wrote to that little church in Colossae. And so just imagine today that God's having Paul write this letter in many ways to us. And he's saying, listen, I'm writing to you who have been set apart by God. You're faithful brothers and sisters. Here's what I want you to know who are here today, who are watching today. Many, most of you, you are faithful followers of Jesus Christ. And, and, and maybe in the confusion of the times, you just need to hear that today. Right? Because I think... In, in all the turbulence, and all the chaos, I don't feel very faithful. And, and maybe just that I still am following Jesus in 2021, I need to hear that from God. Justin, you are a faithful son. Maybe you need to hear that. You are a faithful son. You are a faithful daughter. If you're still following Jesus, despite all the mess around you, maybe you need to hear that word this morning. You are a faithful follower of Jesus. And then he says this, he says, may God, he would always give a a little prayer to the people he was writing to, and here's what he says to them. May God our Father give you grace and peace. Listen, when you're living in chaos, when you're living in a confusing time, what do you need more than anything else? You need a whole bunch of grace and a whole lot of peace. Anybody else feel a need for grace and peace? And Paul just writes that to these people he's never met in this town he's never been to, and apparently never goes to. And he says, I pray that God gives you grace, right? All of God's riches and all of God's blessings with no strings attached. You don't have to earn God's favor. You don't have to deserve God's favor, because you can't. I pray God gives you that, and I pray he gives you his peace. Wouldn't it be refreshing to get an extra load of peace this morning? If there was a place to just kind of hook up into the wall and download some peace, would you hook up? Peace, right? And so he's saying to these Christians who are in this turbulent, confusing, chaotic culture, I hope that you get grace and peace right from God. Verse three, we always pray for you. How cool would that be? Paul the Apostle knows about us, cares about us, and is praying for us. That's pretty cool. We, we, we always pray for you. And, and here's what I want you to know this morning. Your spiritual leaders, your elders, your pastors here at Berean, we are always praying for you. And I know that many of you are doing the same for us. You're praying for us. We get letters and notes and emails that you are. And I want you to know it's mutual. We are always praying for you. Paul says, we always pray for you. And we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. (laughs) Epaphras told him all about it. We have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all of God's people. My friends, pause right there. I think that you're aware of this, but people in our region, people in our community, they have heard about your faith. They have. I mean, 50 some years ago, there were just a handful of people that started a Bible study in a home. And that's led to a movement of people in our area with now campuses all around and, and, and partnerships with other churches across the Northeast America of people in a community with declining population but a growing church of big faith. People have heard of your faith and your love for all of God's people. It is not lost on me that our church has become known for loving other churches and other believers. It is not lost on me that we've helped to partner and connect other pastors and other churches and other Christians. That is a real cool, kingdom-minded attitude that I think is a hallmark of this church that I pray we never lose. I pray we're always celebrating the wins of other churches. I pray we're always celebrating and praying for other churches because we are not in competition. We are on the same team. And that was the heart of this little church in Colossae. Their faith was well known. And their love for God's people was well known. It comes, he says in verse five, from your confident hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven. (laughs) Are you convinced that the day you step off this earth, you step into God's presence in heaven? I, I am. And I think that's the hope that gets us through the mess. And it was the same for this little group in Colossae. You have had this expectation, this expectation of heaven ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. Ever since you first heard the truth of the good news. You embraced it, you believed it. I think for many of us, the day that we received Jesus, it wasn't the first time we heard it, but it felt like the first time we heard it. Because all of a sudden it made sense. For many of us, when we describe our conversion experience, it's, it's like a light bulb moment. Like a eureka I get it. How did I not hear this? How did I not understand this? Paul says, ever since you first heard it, you've had this expectation of eternity in heaven and that hope in Jesus. Verse six, this same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. Do you realize that 20 centuries later, the good news of Jesus is still going out all over the world? you realize that we partner with and fund every month a, a, an organization called the Seed Company that does bible translations and their big goal is that by 2025 which is only 4 years off that the bible will begin to have been translated in every existing language of the world in the next 4 years and we're funding that you're funding that you're funding the gospel to be in the language of every single human being on earth, seven point something billion people in the next four years. That's kind of cool. And so the gospel is going out, the good news is going out all over the world. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. Do you believe that the good news of Jesus still changes lives? You've experienced it. You've seen it. Some of you have seen it with your family. This week I got to celebrate as another person surrendered their life to Jesus. It was such a joy. It's ne- it never gets old. And he says it bears fruit everywhere by changing lives, just as it changed your lives from the day you first heard and understood. Notice that you heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. You learned about the good news from Epaphras, our beloved coworker. He is Christ's faithful servant and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. What's kind of cool is Paphris did this 1,300-mile journey to be with Paul. For some reason, he decided once he got with Paul, I need to stick with you longer. And Paul's like, but I need to send a message back to your church. And so they decided that they'd give this letter to Tychicus, who was Paul's uh, helper and assistant, Listen, if you're looking for a boy's name, go with Tychicus. It's a cool name. Tychicus. And and then the other young man that they sent this letter with is a guy named Onesimus. Anyone heard the story of Onesimus? He's got a whole book devoted to him, a little book, tiny book, one page, called Philemon. Onesimus was a slave from the city of Colossae. And his, his slave owner, his master that he ran away from, lived in Colossae. And so Paul said, I'm going to send you back to your hometown where you ran away with this letter to the church at Colossae and a little letter to your slave master titled Philemon. And so Tychicus and Onesimus came back to Colossae with these letters to the church. So just just a little historical fun fact there. And he says, "Epaphras has told me all about you. He told us told us about the love that you have for others that the Holy Spirit's given you." So, verse nine, we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. Man, when Epaphras came and told me about you, I just keep praying and praying for you guys. I keep praying for you guys, and here's what I'm praying: We ask God to give you complete knowledge of His will. Listen, those of us who live in a confusing time, who here would love to have complete knowledge of God's will? (laughs) Wouldn't that be awesome? And Paul's bold enough to say, I'm just gonna pray that for you. I pray that you have complete knowledge of God's will. Yes, you're living right now like this, unable to see in front of you. I pray that you're gonna get glasses. We're gonna say, oh, there's the big signs hanging from the ceiling. Okay, God, now I see what you want. And Paul's just praying this for this little church. I pray that you'll have complete knowledge of God's will. We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. This is a cool prayer to pray for each other. I've begun praying this now for our church family that God would give us complete knowledge of his will and give us spiritual wisdom and understanding. Verse 10 then the way you live, because see what you think determines how you live, then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. Don't miss that. How did Paul say they were going to grow? By, by, by knowing what better and better? By knowing God better and better. You'll never rise above your view of God. He's saying if you can grow in your understanding of God, if you can see God clear and understand his will better and gain spiritual wisdom and understanding, then you will grow. It all happens when you learn to know God better and better. Now don't get confused by this concept of no. There's two words for no in the ancient language. One word for no was a knowledge. It was a mind-based understanding. The other word for knowledge was to truly know someone experientially. So what Paul was praying for them is I don't just want you to know about God. I want you to experience God. I want you to know God firsthand. I don't want you to say, my grandma told me this about God. I don't want you to have to live your life saying my parents believe this. I want you to be able to say... I know God, and I believe him with all my heart. And so that's his hope and his prayer for them, that they will truly know God, not just intellectually, but they will know him experientially better and better. Verse 11, we also pray that you will be strengthened with, his, with all his glorious power, so you will have all the endurance and patience you need. Does anyone else feel like they need a little bit of endurance Anyone else feel like you need a little bit of patience? I think when, when COVID hit 18 months ago, a lot of us felt like we were gonna weather it and we were gonna be good and, and we kind of braced ourselves for a sprint and we're now on our 10th marathon and it's exhausting and we're still going. And so the, the endurance and the patience that he's talking about is the same thing that we need today. We need the endurance and patience to say, okay, I'm not gonna give up. I'm not gonna tap out. I'm not gonna get disillusioned and walk away. I'm not gonna drift. I'm gonna stay firm on what I know to be true because I'm gonna have endurance and patience that comes from God. May you be filled with joy. What do people need in difficult times? They need joy because it's one thing to stay in the race. It's another thing to enjoy being in the race. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but do you still enjoy being in this race? don't, Don't raise your hands. I'm not sure any of us even would right now, but genuinely, do you still enjoy being in this race? God wants us to. Like There's a joy that he's looking to deposit into our accounts so that we can have a joy in the midst of this mess. I think the best advertisement for Jesus Christ is Christians who have joy in 2021 I think you will stand out like a sore thumb I think people will be really bothered by how strange you are and eventually they'll want to know why you're so strange joy what if we just decided joy's an attitude it's a choice what if we decided I'm going to have joy joy is a fruit of the spirit What if I decided I'm going to be close to God, close to his spirit. I'm going to let him put joy in my life. And this doesn't make sense because it's not a real joyful season of life, but I'm going to have joy. I'm going to have joy. Always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the, what's he say there? In the light. When did it become hard for me to drive when I was losing my vision? In the dark. When your vision's fuzzy, it gets harder and harder to see in the dark. And he's asking that we live in the light. And look at how he words it in verse 13 for he rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of us, of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sin. We were all driving in darkness spiritually. We were all white knuckling the steering wheel trying to figure it out, trying to do life on our own. And Jesus is like, "Hey, come into my kingdom. I've got the lights on." Come come into my kingdom. I'll even take the steering wheel for you. And when we were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus, all of a sudden there's this light, and all of a sudden we get it, and all of a sudden we have new hope, new faith, new new endurance, and new joy. And now he's going to drop on them. And man, what comes next in some of your Bibles, it looks like a poem, because it kind of is. Some Some people call this the Messiah poem. And it is just some extraordinary truth about Jesus. So I mentioned our view of God was going to get bigger. This is where our view of Jesus, his son, will get a little bit bigger, I hope. Here we go. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a good painting or drawing or depiction of God? I haven't either, and you know why. God's spirit. What do you draw? He's a spirit who lives in unapproachable light. So if you see a painting with just a bunch of light, you just saw a pretty decent painting of God. And yet Jesus is the visible image of God. He is God in flesh. So while we can't ever see God with our eyes, we can see Jesus, and Jesus is the Son of God. People always struggled with that during Jesus' lifetime, even his own followers. They they wanted to see the Father, and Jesus kept saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like, really? How's that work? Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created. This is fascinating. Before anything was created, there was God. We all kind of are aware of that. Many of us believe that. But before anything was created, there wasn't just God. There was his son, Jesus. Jesus was there before the creation of the universe, the galaxies, and all that. And then he says this. And he is what overall creation? Okay, for a moment there, let's talk about that word supreme. You ever gotten a supreme burger Some of you say, no, man, you're missing out. Next time you go to a burger joint, ask for a supreme burger, okay? Many places, chains have them. And I'm gonna tell you, if you get a supreme burger, it's not gonna be on their dollar menu. It's gonna be their most expensive, it's gonna be their biggest burger, because supreme means ultimate or superior. It's the biggest, it's the best. And he drops a word here for our understanding of Jesus. He drops supreme. Jesus is the biggest and best. You don't get bigger and you don't get better than Jesus. And so whatever your view of Jesus is, make it 10 times bigger and you still won't be close. Whatever your view of Jesus' goodness is, his power, again, make it 10 times bigger and you won't even be scratching the surface of his power and his goodness. Jesus is supreme over all creation for through him, through Jesus, God created everything. See, wait a minute, I thought God made it all. Jesus was the power behind the creation. For through Jesus, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Now, wait a minute, what on earth is he talking about? Anyone have any idea what these thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities are that are in the unseen world? I'm not sure either which is pretty amazing. Like he, He's trying to enlarge our view of God, saying there's a, there's a multiverse, in a sense. It's not just a universe. There's a multiverse. There are other thrones and principalities and powers. There are unseen forces in the spiritual world. There are battles going on right here for us, over us, for our church, for our community. We can't see them. We don't understand them. And Jesus is the one who made those things too. I can't even see it, let alone understand it, and yet Jesus is the one who made it. So again, your view of Jesus, it's probably too small because he's created not just everything we can see, but he's created all these things we can't see that we know very little about, next to nothing. Everything was created through him. Everything was created through Jesus, and this is what's amazing to me. Everything was created through him and for him. Why was planet Earth created? For Jesus. Why were you created? For Jesus. Why was your family created? For Jesus. Why was this church created? For Jesus. Why was the unseen world created? For Jesus. So it wasn't just made by him. It was made for him. Until you understand your purpose, you'll never live with purpose. Your purpose is to live for Jesus. Which is why Jesus' followers have a joy that the rest of the world don't, because we finally found our purpose verse 17, he existed before anything else, and this gets cool, and he holds all creation together. So so Jesus, although we can't see him today, literally he's what holds everything together. Now, some of you might say this morning, man, I feel like my world is falling apart. You imagine what it would feel like if Jesus really let go of you, which he won't. He's the one that holds the world and you and I together. Oh, this is such good stuff. Verse 18, Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. We say this all the time. Whose church is this? Who's our lead pastor? Jesus Christ. This is his church. We're his body. He's the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. He's first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Jesus was the bridge to get human beings back to God. We've rebelled against God. We've broken God's heart. We have no access to God, and Jesus changed it all. Verse 21, I'm going to read this last section here, and we're going to stop. Verse 21, this includes you who were once far away from God, you were his enemies. Can you say that this morning? You were once the enemy of God? All of us were born as enemies of God, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions, yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. Here's why that is so shocking. When you stand before a person of royalty, nobility, power, authority, like Paul would stand before Caesar one day, what are you supposed to do in the king's presence? At the very least, you bow to your knees. More than likely, if you want to keep your head, you put your face on the ground too. And that is a sign of submission and reverence for a supreme being. When you are in the very presence of God, you know what you do? You stand you stand because you have been made faultless by Jesus Christ. So think about that for a moment. When we sing, and we're gonna do so in a minute, and we're we're gonna end with kind of a fun song, we often will do what when we sing? We will stand. We are approaching the presence of God, talking to God through song, and we are standing. What gives us the right to stand? Jesus Christ gives me the right to stand in the presence of God because I am faultless, blameless. And I think of myself, and I think, no, I'm not. Yes, I am. Jesus has cleansed me, forgiven me, and somehow completely wrapped me in robes of white. I am blameless to stand before God. Verse 23, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. What was Paul getting at in this whole section? I think what he was getting at was verse 23. You must continue to believe this truth, the truth about what Jesus has done for you, how he's changed your life, made you blameless, and you must do what in it firmly? You must stand firmly in it, don't drift away. Don't drift away. You and I are living in really confusing, turbulent times. If we're a boat and this world's an ocean, we're in a hurricane. And the waves and the storm is raging. And what Jesus asked of us, what Paul asked of Colossae, is that they not drift with the tide, drift with the wind, or drift with the waves. And the only way, if you're on a ship in a storm, that you stay stable is by putting down your anchor. And that's the only way you face the waves correctly. If you don't face the waves straight on, if you end up hitting the waves broadside, what happens to your boat? You collapse. So what you got to do is you got to anchor, let the boat face you to the waves, let the waves roll through you. You don't let the waves hit you sideways. You let the waves roll through you. My friend, you and I need to anchor our lives, anchor our minds, anchor our souls on Jesus Christ. And then it doesn't matter the size of the waves. Jesus, when he was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he ended his sermon with this concept. He said the wise man built his home on the rock, on the bedrock. And when the storms came, the house stood. The foolish man builds his life on the sand. Those homes don't last. My friends, now, during the turbulent storms that we're living through, is your anchor holding? If it's in Jesus, it will. Is your life rooted on bedrock? If it is, the waves, the storm won't wash it away. So I think Paul's little encouragement and challenge to this church in Colossae, man, I feel like it's needed for us. And the hope and the encouragement and the challenge that he ends with, don't drift. See, I think Jesus is the antidote for confusion. I think it's that simple. Jesus is the cure, is the solution for confusion. Confusion. Paul didn't answer all of their questions about all of the things they were wrestling with, and he didn't answer all of mine about all the things I'm wrestling with or you're wrestling with, but I think what he does is he points us back to Jesus. He says, refocus, let your view of God be enlarged, and watch the joy, the endurance, the hope, the peace, the grace that floods your soul because you're anchored on the rock that will never move. Do you bow with me in prayer? I'm going to ask the music teams at all our campuses to come on up at this time. and In just a moment, they're going to end us with this fun song that I mentioned. And the song is very simply titled, My Feet Are on the Rock. My feet are on the rock. And in a moment, we're going to stand, we're going to have fun and sing that and, and look at the words as we sing it. And I'm going to read them for you. It says this, I can see the clouds roll in, I can feel the wind as they try to shake me. I will not be moved. My feet are on the rock. I can feel the waters rise. I can hear the howling lies that haunt me. Fear won't hold me now. My feet are on the rock. When I feel my hope about to break, I will cling to your unchanging grace. Let the waters come and the earth give way. I'll be dancing in the rain because my feet are on the rock. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So stomp your feet and clap your hands. Our feet are on the rock. Father God, I pray that today as a church family, we can be filled with the courage and the boldness to put our anchor in you, grow our understanding of you, grow our faith, deepen our knowledge of you. And as that deepens and strengthens, may our eyes be refocused to see who you really are and through the storm. May our anchor hold true and fast. And may we be able to proclaim to everyone around us, I'm stable, I'm joyful because my feet are on the rock. They're not shifting based on the latest headline. They're not shifting based on the latest scandal. They're not shifting based on the latest health scare. They're they're on the rock. They're on Jesus. And no matter what comes, I cannot be moved because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Father, thank you that this morning we can sing and say with all of our hearts, our feet are on the rock. And God, for those who are hearing me today, whose feet are not on you yet, I pray that maybe today would be the day that they would surrender their life to you, they would put their faith and trust in you, and they would stand anew in a moment and be able to say with their own lips, my feet are on the rock of Jesus Christ. God, our heart and prayers that everyone hears this good news of Jesus. It is too good to keep to ourselves. Thank you for the hope that you give us. It's in Jesus' powerful name that we pray as a church family this prayer. And God's people said, Amen.